This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. So, whose information do you trust when it comes to COVID-19? I was very happy to see a poll which shows Canadians trust doctors the most, which is why we turn to doctors and scientists so often here on Fight Back. The Proof Strategies poll find finds 81% trust doctors, 77% rely on scientists, while less than a quarter have confidence in what they hear from business executives. And for politicians, that goes down to 18%. And this, as we are learning about a new scientific study, which proves that COVID-19 is much more severe than seasonal flu, and the risk of death associated with it is three and a half times higher. I'm again very happy about this because I still get people calling in and trying to tell me that the pandemic is really just like the flu or a bad flu season, and only old people are at risk. And it's best for you, the audience, to hear about the data, not from me, but from the experts. Let me give out the numbers in case you have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Amal Verma, a physician and scientist at St. Michael's Hospital and the author of that Canadian medical journal study and Dr. Alone Vaseman, Infectious Diseases Specialist at the University Health Network. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So uh, first of all, what's your reaction uh, to learning that actually most Canadians will trust you guys when, when you have information about the pandemic? Alon. Uh, it was, I will say for me, it was very heartening. I, I was kind of uh, uh, chuckling to myself because uh, Dr. Vaisman and myself are both uh, physicians and scientists. So I think if according to your numbers there, that, that should mean that uh, 150% of Canadians would trust us. Okay. That, that, that might be a politician's math. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dr. Vaisman? Yeah, I think uh, this pandemic has shown uh, the public uh, that doctors are can be well-rounded and can be good at communicating to the audience about the pandemic. And I think many people generally have good relationships with their physicians and having them on the media has generally been a positive thing to be able to communicate um, accurate facts to the public about the pandemic. And uh, we here at uh, Zoomer Media, we really appreciate all the time that you're giving us and and all the expert advice. But let's get right to it, Dr. Verma. So how exactly did you conduct this study? So we worked with seven hospitals in Toronto and Mississauga. And those hospitals securely shared data out of their electronic medical records with a research network that I helped co-lead. And Basically, we were able to paint a very detailed picture of what happens to people once they're hospitalized with both COVID and influenza. And so we were able to study about a thousand people who had COVID-19 hospitalizations, which represented almost 25% of all COVID hospitalizations in that first wave of the pandemic. 
and uh, compare that to about 800 influenza hospitalizations. Uh-huh. And uh, so you found that people were three and a half times more likely to die. Uh, but what about other severe con- consequences? Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing, so because we had a lot of really rich information out of the electronic records, we could uh, control for a lot of different factors. So we could basically provide a comparison of if you were to take the same person who was hospitalized with influenza and a similar person hospitalized with COVID-19, we could look at the comparison of the outcomes of those people. And like you said, there's a three and a half times greater risk of death. We also find with COVID-19 compared to influenza, we also found a one and a half times greater risk of needing intensive care. So needing to be on a ventilator or having that kind of intensive care treatment. And then finally, people stayed in hospital for a one and a half times longer if they had COVID-19 compared to the flu. On average, COVID-19 patients ended up staying hospital around 10 days. So it really painted a stark picture of how serious COVID-19 can be as an illness. What about this uh, business? I, I mean, the, the death numbers certainly do show that older people are are way disproportionately affected, alone. Uh, what do you say to people say, well, you know, I'm not old, it's not my problem? Yeah, even with COVID-19, uh, just by the sheer volumes of the number of cases that have been seen, even younger people can be affected and can die from the virus. And the other important thing is that even if the mortality rate is lower among younger people or middle-aged people, those individuals can still be affected by long-term consequences of the virus that can last for months as far as we know. So regardless of whether or not you are young, you can still be affected. Furthermore, you also have the capacity to transmit it to elderly or more vulnerable people in the community. So another reason for young people to take the virus seriously. What about the comparison, Dr. Verma? Uh, Is this only compared uh, to this flu season, which is a very mild flu season, or uh, what's the situation with that? Great question. We actually compared it to last year's flu season, which was a very typical flu season. We also were able to compare sort of last year's flu season, these 800 patients with a big global study of influenza, which had more than 100,000 patients in it, and that had a very similar comparison. So this is a comparison to a typical seasonal influenza season, not just this season. And I just want to pick up on something you really raised an important point there about the younger adult population. So in our study, when we looked at uh, adults under the age of 50, they made up one in five of all hospitalizations for COVID-19. So an important proportion of people who are hospitalized with COVID-19 are younger adults under the age of 50. And of those younger adults, one in three needed intensive care. One in 10 ended up being re-hospitalized unexpectedly after discharge. And one in 20 died from the hospital visit. So to your point, even though the death rate is lower, although I would say still very important, a, a one in 20 death rate for people under the age of 50 is, is striking, right? And would be unexpected. Um, even if they survive, as Alon mentioned, uh, there are long-term consequences, especially if you survive an intensive care unit visit. There can be a lot of disability and long-term uh, health consequences associated with that, which can go on for months and months. Well, we, we keep hearing about those so-called long haulers that may not have even had a very severe case, but but uh, they have uh, uh, strange symptoms for months and months after. 
let us take a call. I think this is exactly uh, the people I'm interested in addressing. Let's take a call from Frank in Concord. Hi, Frank. Hi, Libby. Go I ahead. I've been listening uh, for, uh, I'm uh, 62. I've been listening for a while, and it's really interesting. And uh, I wanted to just uh, mention a little bit on this subject. Uh, my uh, my brother he he doesn't believe he thinks that the, the, this is all a hoax, and uh, he he thinks uh, he said that six hundred thousand people uh, die worldwide of the common flu. So I'm trying to tell him that far more people have died uh, worldwide uh, because of the pandemic. This is similar to almost like uh, well not not like the Spanish flu. Of a hundred years ago, eighteen million people, and I, I, I keep telling. He lives at home with my sister, and my mother is eighty-six, and I, you know, I, I keep threatening him. Uh, you know, don't, uh, you know, don't go out without a mask, and don't infect my mother because, you know, I'm going to get upset. And he, he just, he's with a, a lot of people that really don't. They they think it, it, it's a hoax of uh, uh, it's it's just uh, something for the uh, almost in a way like, uh, the, the rich getting richer and forcing people out of work and uh, sounds taking like, over and it it's sounds all, like it's all it, a mass uh, confusion you know it it sounds like conspiracy theories yeah uh, yeah whole frankly. pile of conspiracy theories. You, know? you should show him this study. Uh, doctors, do you have any recommendations on how Frank can convince his brother? I, I think uh, that even if you recognize that COVID, even if you think that it's as bad as flu and not recognize that science that says that it's worse than flu, having two flus or having more than one of these viruses around is still very, very, it's still very challenging and hard to deal with and increases your mortality. So if people recognize that flu can be deadly, as this individual has recognized, then it's important to recognize that having even one other virus circulating is another threat to people's health, especially the elderly, as described by this person. Uh, yeah, and the death toll is it's uh, over a million people worldwide, is it not? Yes, uh, the global death uh, is now far exceeds that, in fact. So even if we experience, let's say, as a rough estimate of half a million global deaths from flu every year. We far exceeded that just from this pandemic this past year alone. That's right. Oh, I thought, oh, sorry. I thought it was uh, far more than a million. You know, like he said, my brother says uh, 600,000 normal uh, flu deaths, you know, normal, unless you're one of them, unless we're one of them, uh, 600,000. I thought it was far more than a million right uh, now, worldwide. No, it's over a million, but it's on top of the flu deaths. Yeah, and maybe the, the thing I would chime in to say around, you know, the relationship with your, the brother and your brother and the conversation you're having with your brother, you know, the first point is, uh, I think you can validate his, he's right. Influenza itself, the seasonal flu is a serious illness and it causes a really important amount of death in the world. Right. So you can start by by saying, yeah, he's absolutely right that that influenza is a serious illness. And, you know, I'd welcome you to, you know, show him show him our, our study comparing. This is actually one of the first studies in the world that directly compares COVID to flu. And we do it in Ontario patients. So, 
you know, the, and certainly no one on our team has any agenda. There's nothing political about anything. This is we're just trying to let the facts speak for themselves and say that, look, in, in, in Ontario, uh, COVID-19 compared to previous influenza seasons is three and a half times more deadly. Um, and the last thing I'll just say is, you know, you're, you're starting from an important point with, with in the fact that trying to convince people out of their ideas is not a one-off conversation. It's about relationships and trust and time. And, you know, obviously this is your brother, so it's a long-lasting relationship there. So, you know, uh, there's there's something to build on, right? There's foundations and building yeah. blocks around that. And really, it's, I think, you know, trying to, trying to reinforce what is it that you have in common Obviously, you know, your concern for your mother and things like that and and acknowledging that there's there is uncertainty out there. But one thing is certainly not uncertain, which is that COVID can have really serious consequences in older people. And I think our study hopefully will help you have that conversation. Okay, Frank, uh, thanks for that. And um, good luck with uh, with convincing your brother. And I think the main thing is to make sure he doesn't bring anything home to your mother. Exactly, because, you know, I like. <laughs> I've been threatening him. Okay. And, uh, I, I uh, you know, I told him the whole world wasn't shut down uh, before. Now, not, not even that we're, we're Roman Catholics, right? The Catholics. And we, you know, the Pope <laughs> at Easter and. Oh, he's. Uh... He's gone. Um, okay. Well, we wish him all the best of luck with that. And uh, uh, we're running out of time on this one. So, Dr. Vaisman, what would you like to leave us with on this? I think it's important for everyone to recognize how serious COVID is. And this uh, analysis shows us that it's not just regular infections that we see every year. For whatever reason, people have become accustomed to understanding that flu comes around every year. And although it kills a substantial number of people, people have become accustomed to that being sort of the way things are. But with COVID, it it not only adds uh, that other layer of people dying and people having poor poor outcomes as a result, it also adds the other consequences related to the healthcare system and the lockdown. So this is, for all those reasons, it's not just another flu, it's not just another respiratory virus. And Dr. Verma, what would you like to leave us with? I'd like to leave with a little bit of a hopeful note, which is one of the reasons that we've been able to manage influenza over the years and that its seriousness has been reduced, although, of course, it is a serious illness, is that people build up immunity to influenza and they've built up immunity through having infections in the past and importantly, through getting our seasonal flu shot. And I'm very hopeful that as we have the COVID-19 vaccine rollout uh, and those become more available to a wider group of people, that the severity of COVID-19 will go down. The, the science about the vaccines are clear. They are safe. They are effective. They will dramatically reduce hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. And so uh, we're all eagerly awaiting that rollout. And I'd encourage everyone to go out and get their vaccine when they are able and when they have the opportunity. Uh, and hopefully the next time we come on, we can be sharing a good news story of, you know, COVID-19 is no longer more serious than the influenza. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Amol Verma. And uh, this study, I think, really goes to the heart of one of the biggest, uh, you know, bogeymen of misinformation. So I was very happy to see it. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay. And now to the politics. And tell me if I'm missing something. Is an election coming soon? 
Yesterday, we talked to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh about his freshly released election promise to abolish for-profit long-term care. He will be addressing CARP's annual general meeting about this in a few minutes. At the same time, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is about to speak to the Board of Trade in Vancouver, and yesterday he shuffled his shadow cabinet, removing the polarizing figure of Pierre Polyevre, who has been a frequent guest on this show from the high-profile finance file. And even Green Party leader Annamie Paul is getting ready, announcing she will run again in Toronto Centre, where she was narrowly defeated by broadcaster Marcy Ian just last October. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister is taking heat for our lousy vaccine rollout. I'm going to give you the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations, as well as Jason Leader, Conservative Strategist and President at Enterprise. Hi, guys. How are you? Good day, Libby. Afternoon. How are okay. you guys doing? Uh, so um, let's get to it. Do do all of these things mean um, we are close to an election, Bob? Look, anytime you're in a minority, I think you got to be ready. I think the government uh, will will certainly not be doing one in the next two months if they'd wanted to do a spring election. I think the vaccine rollout put an end to that. Uh, so I think the earliest time you'll see an election may be June. Um, I think that there is uh, a, a possibility of that, um, if not, uh, perhaps maybe August or September, too, as well. So all the parties need to get organized. They need to get their candidates in place. They need their money. Uh, they need you know, to organize their campaigns. And I think you see everybody doing that right now. Jason Leader, I mean, is there a chance that the opposition might trigger an election? I, I don't think so, Libby. I think Bob's got this one nailed. I think the PM was disappointed uh, that he missed his window last fall uh, in between the first and second waves. Uh, he's probably not going to make that mistake again. Um, once the vaccine rollout starts to go smoothly, I think he's intent on on, on pulling the plug. Um, I don't think, I think Mr. O'Toole believes, and I think rightly, that he probably needs some time uh, to introduce himself to Canadians. And I think, uh, you know, Mr. Singh, you, know, you just never know. The NDP, they actually get, ironically, they, they love elections because they get equal time and Mr. Singh, frankly, performs a heck of a lot better during elections than outside of them. So, but I think on balance, uh, you're going to see the liberals, liberals pull the plug uh, in early summer, just like uh, just like Bob mentioned. Hmm. Uh, Bob, um, the prime minister is, uh, you know, losing popularity. The vaccine rollout is really not going that well. Uh, are you 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 seem to be sure that people will forget uh, once it starts? No, I think people are reasonable, Libby. I think you and I have a different uh, point of view on this one. If these guys get what they say they're going to get in the first quarter, I think it's 4 million uh, uh, doses of vaccine in, and if things have started, I think people will be reasonable in their approach. They said last November that there was going to be uh, there were going to be gaps because we don't produce vaccine here um, in uh, in Canada. And they were fairly clear about it. So, look, I think, are, are people frustrated? Yes. Am I frustrated? I am, uh, for sure. I think people want to want to get the vaccine. But I think also if things are moving on and if, uh, and if people are getting vaccinated, I think it becomes less and less of an issue. 
Jason, you know, uh, one of the commentaries in McLean's magazine, uh, they were saying uh, O'Toole's strategy is to be as bland as possible. Do you agree with that? <laughs> well, listen, he's never going to, he's never, he's, he's a lot of steak, not a lot of sizzle. And that's, uh, you know, you can't, you can't be inauthentic in politics. I think Bob and I would both agree on that. So he is what he is, right? He's a suburban dad, um, you know, former veteran. Uh, you know, he's a guy who, who looks like he might shovel your snow if you get home a little late from work. You know, like that's, that's what he is. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't have good ideas. In fact, quite the opposite. I think, I think he does have good ideas. But I, I do think Bland works a little bit with him. Listen, he's never going to out Trudeau Trudeau. And this vaccine rollout's been a, been a huge opportunity um, in that it's, you know, it's just, it's gone so poorly. And, and, and you know, a guy like Mr. O'Toole, um, you know, the best he's going to be able to do is make this election, hopefully for him, about quiet competence versus, you know, sort of all sizzle, no steak. And so that's that's the frame that he could possibly win on. And I think that's where he's got to be. And the vaccine rollout certainly helps him on that. OK, well, I'm, I'm looking at the issues and um well, we're we're very uh, in, involved in the long-term care issue, and it's a shame. And everybody agrees that it is a national shame that that so many of our elders have died. And I think it was quite smart for for uh, Singh to get out in front and make a big, bold election promise, whether he can deliver. And in the meantime. Uh, Aaron O'Toole doesn't seem to be interested in that at all. He was saying, you know, on the one hand, Singh is quite radical, saying he's going to abolish for-profit long-term care. But in the meantime, Aaron O'Toole is saying he he doesn't even favor national standards, which uh, to me seems like a kind of a, a, a bottom line, Bob. Do you think that will hurt him? Yeah, I thought it was a very weird announcement. He sounded more like a lobbyist for the pr- sort of private long-term care industry than leader of the Conservative Party. And I think there's good opportunity here for, for, for frankly, all the parties to, uh, to move. But he's put himself into a situation where he's basically saying, I'm not going to do anything about this. Um, it's up to the provinces. Well, leaving this up to the provinces ha- has led to thousands of deaths. So one, we need a huge inquiry into this. Two, we, we need national standards. Three, we need, uh, we need to, to do a thorough review of everything that's gone on here because it's clearly not working. And I think, uh, do I think it should just be public the way Mr. Singh is saying? No, I think it probably requires a blend of both public and private sector operators. But to kind of just abandon the field, uh, even before the election begins on this issue, I found quite strange. Yeah. And uh, Jason Leader, what do you make of that? I mean, I'm trying to think what what would the politics of that be? I mean, uh, both the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, who who has not been overly helpful to uh, uh, to Aaron O'Toole and the Quebec Premier are very adamant about, you know, him him staying out of their lane. So is he trying to appeal to them by saying this? I think, you know, you're, you're, what you're seeing is a, a leader who's pretty new and getting his sea legs. And I will say, um, it was the most honest response of any of the people who have, um, who have responded publicly. Like Mr. Singh's response and his proposal is not an honest proposal. It's impossible. And most, uh, you know, if, if you follow the issue, if you know the issue, um, I do. you know, essentially there would have been no long-term care about that built 
uh, in Ontario or any other place if it weren't for some of these homes. I'm not suggesting that everything's uh, you know great. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm just saying. Mr. O'Toole was, I would say, being more honest with Canadians with what's achievable and what's possible given the amount of resources. That said, I do think you make a good point, Libby, in terms of, in terms of, um, you know, if you're, if you're sort of aiming at seniors and their families, those people who are taking, taking care of those, those people. And, and people are, who, and are vote, about this, who vote, who vote in overwhelming numbers and generally conservative is a natural place. Yeah, one hundred percent. So you you need a solution here. You need some proposals. You need some ideas. Uh, you need some home care ideas. You need some long term care uh, ideas, and uh, and you need some mental health uh, uh, stuff as well. And 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 Mr. O'Toole is going to have to come up with a platform that, you know, frankly, softens the party a little bit on those on those issues because we're in a time when people want to see empathy. They want to see. Um, they want to see the things that, frankly, Mr. Trudeau doesn't get great marks for delivering, but he gets great marks for empathy. And Mr. O'Toole is going to have to stand those edges off a little bit from the party, for sure. Yeah, it, It's interesting. And, and one of the things that you just said, Jason, about no long-term care being built, you know, on the one hand, that's what they're saying. You know, if you get rid of the private sector, long-term care won't be built. But on the other, throughout the whole thing, the big excuse in for-profit care having the worst performance is that, oh, well, we have the oldest homes. <laughs> you know, those those two things can't really, you know what I mean? Well, uh, there was 15 years there. And, and listen, I don't want to make this a big partisan thing because it's, it's yeah. there was, you know, the, 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 the history of this in Ontario is there were yes. 15,000 beds built from sort of 95 to 2003. There were 600 beds built, maybe up to 2,000 for the next little bit. And then now we're on a building spree again. And the truth is there's not enough resources, there's not enough staffing, and there's not enough beds. And, um, you know, somebody's going have to have to have to solve that. And the truth is the big problem we've got is the, the staff aren't paid enough to attract them to the, air, to the areas because there's just not enough money in the system. That's going to have to change. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bob, uh, so you're sticking by your June prediction and you're saying this is just uh, this is just a matter of getting ready, right? Yeah, I think so. I think everyone's getting ready. I think we saw Mr. O'Toole uh, retooling his uh, his shadow cabinet. Um, I think that's another example of, of getting ready for the election. I think he wanted to uh, put a little light between himself and uh, Pierre Polyev. Pierre Polyev plays well with uh, the base of the Conservative uh, Party, but I don't think he helps expand the pie. He's kind of excessively partisan for independents and soft liberals. Uh, I think there wasn't a great chemistry there with uh, him and the leader, and I think his performance was a bit mixed. I think they were expecting him to be tougher with Christia Freeland. I think she kind of held his own. Uh, and finally, I think it, he... He kind of sucks up a lot of uh, energy and attention. He does. And and when you're a leader, you want the energy and attention focused on that person. So uh, Ed Fast, uh, I, I think he'll be kind of like a competent, solid Michael Wilson of the West Coast. <laughs> you know, he'll be a, a little less uh, flashy than Mr. Polyev. And uh, that may not be a bad thing for Mr. O'Toole. Okay. And and finally, before we wrap it up for today, Jason, Annamie Paul, is she going to make it in Toronto Centre this time? <laughs> I don't think so. I uh, I don't think so. I think it's a gutsy move. Uh, I, I don't know. It's liberal ter- territory. I think it's her chances in the by-election, to be honest with you. It's an easier easier time to get. Low turnout election, a lot easier for a leader like her to, uh, to pull through. A big high turnout federal election lot more difficult in that kind of liberal territory. So good luck to her. Uh, she's impressed coming out of the gate, but I wish she would have pulled Elizabeth May and found a seat that was a little more amenable. 
Bob, do you agree? Yeah, I admire guts. Uh, I thought it was. Uh, I think. I think it'll be a good fight in there. Uh, I think it'll be tough. Uh, but uh, Marcy Ian is. Uh, I had a occasion to deal with her uh, as an MP, and uh, she was responsive, good, right on stuff. So, uh, so you know, I think uh, she'll be formidable too, as well. So, and she well, has huge name recognition, and she's got great name uh, recognition too, as well. So. We shall see. Okay. This this seat uh, is like to the liberals is like crowfoot is the conservatives. They win this seat. <laughs> okay. Far off. Okay. Uh, thank you for that, Jason Leader and Bob Richardson. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Libby. See you, Bob. Okay. Uh, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we will be talking about advocating for yourself when it comes to cancer. It's really important when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Here on Fight Back, we have often talked about the fact that cancer treatment has become one of the casualties of COVID-19. As a matter of fact, we discussed that just a week ago on World Cancer Day. Now, screenings are way down, and that means that a lot of malignancies, early malignancies, are not being caught, and those patients will end up presenting with later stage disease that is harder to treat. In addition, a lot of treatments that are not deemed urgent are being postponed, which again can lead to worse outcomes. Not to mention the psychological damage, because uh, when it comes to cancer, the word elective, well, uh, it's a big misnomer. So what should you be on the lookout for and how do you advocate for yourself or for a loved one, let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to hear from you. Tell me your stories. And now I'd like to go to Kathy Barnard, founder of the Save Your Skin Foundation. Hi, Kathy. Hey, Libby. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm very good. Okay. Well, tell us your story. When were you first diagnosed and what happened? Ooh, I was actually misdiagnosed in 2003. I had a small uh, lump on my left arm, just above my elbow. And I was actually heading to Australia to play in the World Master Games for softball. So I went to see my GP and was told it was fatty tissue. Um, I spent a lot of time in the sun, both in my sports. Uh, I have very Scottish white skin uh, and wanted it to be darker. So uh, not only would I lay on the roof of my mom's house with baby oil, but uh, I would uh, frequent a tanning bed uh, in the winter. So I I was already starting to do my work research around skin cancer, so I was very conscious of the mom. Um, anyways, it got left. I saw my GP a couple times that year. Uh, she was still convinced it was fatty tissue, so I asked if I could have an ultrasound down in it. I was sent to a plastic surgeon only for him to come back and tell me it was uh, melanoma. Wow. Uh, yeah. So by then I had a couple spots, uh, little lumps. They didn't look very big either. They were the size of a pencil eraser. Um, yeah. And I had those uh, taken out in 2003 and then our world exploded. Um, I went in and was told I had uh, metastatic melanoma. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there was really no treatments available for me anywhere in Canada. Uh, there was an old drug that they were using that they'd used in the HIV days, and I could get that. I had to inject myself for a full year. Uh, I was lucky, apparently, because it was free. I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> I thought all 
treatments and uh, drugs in Canada were free. Um, uh, anyways, I did that uh, treatment for a year and uh, went back to work and my normal life. And six months later, we got a shock when it had come back to my lung, liver, bone, adrenal gland, and kidney. And I was given three to six months. Well, uh, wow. Um, in the first instance, when you got your diagnosis, uh, was it um, metastatic then? Was it four stage? Or they didn't, was it? I didn't ask what stage, and I, I probably would now because I know lots more about melanoma and cancer in general, but I didn't even ask. I, you know, I just, you know, as a Canadian, we have such faith in our physicians and our, our system that I just went in and the doctor said, we'll do a chest x-ray, you'll start treatment tomorrow, and I said, thank you very much. <laughs> You'd think the doctor, I mean, uh, I've had cancer as well, twice, and, and they usually do uh, tell you your stage. Yeah, I didn't ask for staging in 2003, but I certainly did in 2005. Okay, um, so you thought you were done with this terrible thing, and you weren't. So what happened then? Uh, I was rushed to a, a lung cancer or a lung surgeon. Uh, it was 14 centimeters of my lung. So they wanted to see whereabouts the cancer was. Unfortunately, it was right in between all four quadrants of the lung. So they were going to have to take it out. Um, my oncologist said, well, let's do a PET scan and see if it's anywhere else because, you know, we don't want to pull that lung out. You're you know, quite young and active. And uh, so when they did the PET scan, we realized it had spread everywhere. Um, they put me on a chemotherapy. Again, all we had in Canada. Uh, they said they'd know after the third round if it was working. Um, my family and I gathered together, and we went to Britain for our last trip. Uh, when we came back, my older son had come with me. He would have been 28 at the time. And as my doctor oncologist was telling me it wasn't working, uh, he mentioned a doctor he had called in the U.S. about a clinical trial. And uh, was there an opportunity? So, yes, there was. Uh, we could get the clinical trial brought into Canada but I needed round-the-clock care. I had to find a center in Canada that would administer and take me. Um, I was lucky. I was referred to uh, the Cross in Edmonton, Alberta. I literally flew out the next day. My husband and I um, were told about this. It was one of the very, very first immuno-oncologies. We don't even see it today. Uh, but I went back. I was told it was going to cost me $40,000. I needed one of my family members there with me around the clock. It had very severe side effects, but it's all its all I had. It was that or nothing. Uh, so I said yes, um, <laughs> and the side effects were incredibly harsh. I code blued in the last round, week round, I think twice, uh, which I had to stop the treatment. But we had already seen all those tumors starting to shrink, so we knew I was having a response. So I uh, got through that. Uh, in 2006, all the tumors were gone. We thought, holy smokes, we get another bullet. Um, I didn't go back to work. I wanted to give back. Uh, I was lucky enough to have worked for a great company uh, that let me go off and be, you know, get well. I had a, a disability carrier. I have an incredible network of support. I had a little bit of money. Um, so, you know, when we thought it was going to be $40,000, we took a deep breath, but we knew we'd be okay. Uh, let me, I let me to- just... Uh- interject to um, to the story. So you got into a clinical trial, and that involved quite a bit of research. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, one of the things, one of the casualties of COVID, now there are fewer clinical trials, certainly for cancer drugs, as everything else is being cur- curtailed because of the pandemic. 
Absolutely. And that was um, one of our patients really in the middle of March uh, that we've been helping at Save Your Skin. That came back to haunt her because we she had uh, had all the treatments available to her uh, in melanoma. Uh, her disease was not regressing. And we had her all set up for a clinical trial in Ontario uh, at Princess Margaret. We had got her, she had to stay there for a month. So we had helped her get an accommodation, her flight. And then with, you know, 24 hours notice, we were told, sorry, we can't, we, firstly, we can't get her on a plane. She shouldn't be flying and we can't admit her here in the midst of COVID. So what happened um, to her? Well, she had to sit put, uh, stay put here in BC. We actually were phoning all over trying to figure out how, how we could get her back there. We were talking to people we knew who drove along, uh, you know, long hauls across the country to see if there's any way they would have taken her. Uh, uh, we couldn't get her on a a plane, we couldn't get her on a train. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we had to wait till it kind of subsided a little bit. Uh, by June, uh, you know, even the doctors and all, everybody was sort of taking a little bit of a breath around COVID, and we were able to get her out there then. Oh, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Now, back to your own case, uh, you, do you advise people on how to uh, look up and get into clinical trials, right? Absolutely. We actually, more than just clinical trials, we help navigate our system. You know, in Canada, um, we have a very unique healthcare system. Um, I know, you know, we like to pride ourselves in it, and I do. Uh, but I also learned that province by province, uh, we have different treatments available at different times. And, you know, in Canada, how you're treated can sometimes depend on your postal code. Um, and that's not even talking about people in our rural areas and our more vulnerable communities, right? Um, you need a huge, you need a huge support system to navigate, uh, our healthcare system. And that's exact. I needed it and didn't have it and had to do it myself on top of just being told I had three to six months. Um, I'll, I'll never be able to put into words what that feels like. Um, I, so, I can yeah. imagine. I remember uh, when I was sick uh, looking for, for clinical trials, and I didn't qualify for a clinical trial that I really wanted to get into, um, and it kind of didn't even make sense to me because uh, I have a genetic mutation, and this drug targets the genetic mutation, but you had to have cancer in a different place to qualify. I mean, all's well that ends well. I ended up doing really well with an old drug, but um, it was it was interesting and things are different now. But uh, I remember I used to spend hours going through American websites looking for clinical trials. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. I kind of know how to do that. But for a regular person, that would be really quite difficult. Oh, it's very difficult. And really, like you said, it's when you were just told you have cancer. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter whether it's stage one, two, three, or four. As soon as you hear the word cancer, you know, your body goes into fight or flight, right? And, uh, you know, I always uh, laugh when I used to watch the commercial where, you know, the woman's being told and all you can hear is what she's thinking in her head because she hasn't heard a word they said. And I know that I felt the same way. I was, I guess I was told by my GP uh, I can't really remember. I just remember thanking her and then getting in my car and realizing I couldn't drive because I had just been told I had uh, metastatic melanoma, which I knew was big because even in my car in that moment when I Googled it, I couldn't find any treatment. 
uh, any survivor, really anything. Even the information I was finding back in 2003 was from 1990-something. The data was outdated. So I already knew I was in, tr- in trouble just because I couldn't find anything. Well, um, it's, it's interesting. We have a good friend who's had, he's fine, metastatic melanoma. And when he was first diagnosed, I think it was around 09, there was nothing. And he was lucky that he hung in because by 2011, huge breakthrough with immunotherapy for melanoma. Um, but you, uh, and you're also very lucky you got into a clinical trial and, uh, just because it's immunotherapy, as you said, doesn't mean it's not a really tough, tough course of treatment. No, but, but that being said though, that wasn't the end of it for me because I started the foundation in 06. Um, and I was asked to go present at the Canadian melanoma conference, uh, in Banff. And I presented about, I mean, you know, to me, I was a survivor because I had gotten from 03 to at least 06. You know, when I told I had three to six months, you know, three years was a, you know, pretty good run. And uh, as I was leaving, uh, my oncologist kind of chased me down and said, look, and now we've got the newer model of the immuno-oncology. This was in 2007. He said, you uh, qualify because it had already moved back again into my small bowel. It was surgically removed. And my oncologist in BC had said I might want to re-challenge the previous treatment. And I said, no, only because of side effects. Um, so, yeah, I was really fortunate again in 2007 to get on the first really innovative uh, immuno-oncology, Yervoy, uh, that they now use in combination with one of the other immuno-oncology. So, again, I was told it was free. I just always thought drugs were free. Um, and I had to fly back and forth to Edmonton, Alberta. But... You know, I, I say the drug's free, but it wasn't free to travel. Okay, can, um, can, I'm, I'm, we've got to take a break, and uh, we will have more when we get back on the other side of the break. Let me give the numbers out again. If uh, you would like some information, have questions or comments on advocating for yourself, uh, especially if you're in a bad situation, uh, Trying to get into a clinical trial, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And uh, we'll be back with more from Kathleen Barnard. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am talking to Kathleen Barnard. She's the founder of the Save Our Skin Foundation. She is a survivor of metastatic melanoma. And since uh, she founded Save Our Skin to help people access, navigate healthcare, which can be very complicated and quite difficult, especially uh, if there isn't much out there for your situation and you have to start looking for things like Clinical trials, which unfortunately are being hindered here in COVID times. If you have questions or comments, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. So, Kathleen, you had one round of the first iteration of immunotherapy. It was really hard on you, and uh, you had another recurrence, and, and then um, you had another round, right? Yeah, the, the newer uh, molecule. So I was actually quite lucky. I didn't um, have very many side effects uh, to that treatment. I guess I got it on compassionate use. 
Uh, and of course, being part of compassionate clinical trial, I got a different dosing cycle than they even do now. Um, yeah, so I just got incredibly lucky. I mean, for a lot of people, joining a clinical trial is really, um, it's, it's their last hope, but most people actually do it out of a desire to help others. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we talk to patients about that too, right? Is it's their opportunity to give back to those diagnosed, uh, coming in behind us. And, and we really know that in melanoma because you know, as as you mentioned, we didn't have anything in treatment right up until 2011. Yeah. And in 2011 and 2012, melanoma went from, I always say, from the back of the bus to literally driving the bus in innovative medicine. We got not only the immuno-oncology, uh, but a targeted treatment as well. And and it's really been, there's been a tsunami of uh, drugs come to us uh, in the melanoma space that are now moving into other cancer indications, right? We're seeing some of these drugs in non-small cell lung. Um, you know, I see the P-coder, uh, the approval process drugs coming daily. And yeah, so we're now seeing those drugs have success in other cancers. Uh-huh. Some are still hard. Uh, my my uh, last cancer was uh, very, very deadly, pancreatic cancer. I'm very fortunate, but very much an outlier. And, and there are lots of, I know, uh, experimentation going on, hoping to find an immunotherapy for it. And it's, it's, it's not happened so far. It's a really tough one. And you know what, Libby, it's tough being an outlier. Um, you know, we, as survivors sometimes, especially with the foundation, I just couldn't take being an outlier and an only survivor. I needed to do what I could do to, to change the way, uh, you know, diagnosis and cancer happens. I don't care which cancer you're diagnosed with, right? It's a really tough journey for you and your family. Uh, if you aren't advocating for yourself or getting somebody to advocate for you, you know, there's lots of great patient advocacy groups across this country that can help, you know, inform you and get you uh, equipped and prepared uh, for that journey, whether it's right from, you know, the first visit with your doctor through a drug or even trying to find those clinical trials. You really need a champion. Um, and somebody that can, you know, really take you through the process. Yeah, I mean, again, it it depends on the circumstance. And if the circumstances that uh, you've been misdiagnosed at the primary care level, that is really tough. Um, and, you know, I, I remember that uh, with my first cancer, which was breast cancer, I mean, uh, I had been cleared six weeks before I found a rather large lump. And, uh, it, it turned out that, you know, things were okay. But when, when doctors, breast cancer doctors who were expert went, went back over my films, cause I always knew I was at high risk and I started being checked at a very young age. They saw it there. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the, the person reading it at the, you know, community clinic where I got my mammograms missed it. Yeah, it's that early diagnosis is key in every cancer, right? And 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 all cancers. And that's that's really was my worry uh, when COVID hit. Is that you know if I know anybody who's had cancer, had a family member, or loved one with it, knows that you really need to build a team. In melanoma, you know, we need our GPs. We have dermatologists. Uh, we have surgeons. You know, involved in our our team. We have an oncologist. 
and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the brakes were, were hit on us and, you know, patients that were not getting into a derm uh, weren't getting the early diagnosis. They were being, you know, left to wait for three months before they could get into a dermatologist, which is a huge concern because we know melanoma and all cancer really, you know, it doesn't grow slowly or, or at the speed you like it to. In melanoma, you know, I had a, a whisper on a lung in January and a 14 centimeter by March. Wow. So, you know, time is, time is of an essence. You know, we're starting, and, it's, 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 uh, we don't have very much time left and the calls are starting to come in. So, uh, I'm going to take one from George in Scarborough. Hi, George. Uh, yes. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. I, I just had a quick question, a uh, comment. Um, would you guess recommend uh, as much as possible to stay out of the sun or if you're in the sun to stay covered up uh, with sunscreen? Uh, I think that's a no-brainer, yes, but I'm going to let Kathleen answer. Yes, and you know, George, I was uh, I, I learned my lesson the hard way. Um, I'm very still, very uh, an outdoor athlete. I love to be outside, but I'm a lot smarter. I make sure I'm not out there in the peak hours. I have my sunscreen. I wear a hat, my glasses, a long sleeve UV shirt. I am very. I just have become very conscious of the damage that those rays can do to your body. You know, the uh, your skin is an organ. It's the largest organ in your body, and you can see it. Um, it needs to be hydrated. And I'll tell you, the CDC, the Canadian Dermatology Association, has really, really good um, parameters of for people to take a look at it. So I would really recommend you check them out. Best wishes. Thank you very much for that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I'm looking out. There's a little bit of sun here. Uh, it's um, not coming in force for a few months. And uh, you pointed out this is lately we see clothing that has UV protection in it for people who like to be out playing sports like you and I, Kathleen. Yes, I, I always say uh, my outdoor activities almost killed me. But in hindsight, they might have saved me, too, because at least... Uh, when I was going through this, I was, you know, re- in relatively, you know, good shape and I looked after myself. But um, I could never be scared of the sun or being outside because it's just who I am, right? It's a part of my life. So, uh, yeah, I'm just very, very careful. So uh, we only have a, about a, a minute or so left. What do you say to people, uh, you know, uh, when should you insist on, on you know, being diagnosed or, or having a look at something, how do they do it now when everything is curtailed, as you say? Well, I guess, well, we're Canadians. Uh, we have a great system. Um, some of the leaders in this world or in this country, I say to everybody, again, check your skin. You see it. I mean, we're always taking pictures of everybody and everything now. So anything that ever looks irregular, you need to go and have that checked by your GP. And, you know, you know your body better than anybody. If it just doesn't look right, you need to ask for a referral. Um, I will tell you, things have slowed down a little bit. Uh, we're now seeing a lot of uh, our GPs and our oncologists actually, you know, doing telemedicine. Um, so, you know, that's kind of picked back up. We're seeing the clinical trials, you know, coming back into the landscape. Uh, for us in melanoma and skin cancer, I worry more because we need a dermatologist. And you know, having a dermatologist appointment via telemedicine just doesn't work because I want them to see all of me uh, from the top of the head to the bottom of my feet. So I would just say you have to advocate, uh, use your voice, um, you know, your skin, and um, yeah, and you just need to advocate for yourself. 
Okay. Uh, thank you so much for that. Kathleen Barnard from uh, the Save Your Skin Foundation in BC. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Libby. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.